being green. We can attest to that, all of the, those of us who have been trying to bring attention to environmental uh, developments and climate change crises, etc. But uh, sometimes it takes a lot of courage, and I am very excited to have someone on the show uh, who has shown exemplary courage in continuing to tell the truth, and that is someone who's been in the news in the last couple of weeks. That is Catherine Hayhoe. She is an expert reviewer for the Nobel Peace Prize-winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Her life's work has been dedicated to discovering and communicating the realities of a changing climate to those who will be most affected by it, and that is all of us. She is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science and director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. She develops new ways to quantify the potential impacts of human activities at the local and regional scale. As the founder and CEO of Atma's Research, she also bridges the gap between scientists and stakeholders to provide relevant state-of-the-art information on how climate change will affect our lives to a broad range of nonprofit industry and government clients. So with those great credentials, it's not surprising that she was asked to include a chapter in Newt Gingrich's book on the environment. Uh, she also was a co-author of her own book with her pastor husband, A Climate for Change, Global Warming Facts. But uh, it is the news about Newt that got Catherine Hayhoe to uh, come to my attention and many Americans because he uh, unceremoniously decided to drop the chapter that she had worked very hard on, uh, not being paid for that. And so that uh, chapter that she worked so hard on will not be in the book. And uh, we're going to talk about that with D.R. Tucker, a good friend to the show. Welcome, Catherine and D.R. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. It's an honor to be here. Yes, I want to talk to you, Catherine, of course, about uh, what's been going on the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, not all the um, email you've been getting has been um, thanking you and positive. In fact, you've uh, been the target of some hate mail, I guess you could say, or perhaps you're getting in the form of phone calls. Let's just talk about that ugly part first. We'll get that out of the way. Did that surprise you? Well, at first, first the surprise that you were <laughs> getting dropped from the book. How did you hear about that? <laughs> Well, whenever um, any climate scientist uh, speaks out publicly in any way about the results of our research, um, hate mail is kind of a, a, what goes with the territory. Um, so I think I and most of my colleagues get what I would characterize as a kind of a, a low level <laughs> of hate mail on a regular basis, if there's any such thing as a low level. Um, you know, every every week or two you get a random email and you get the occasional sick 12-page missive from somebody who has <clears throat> proven without a doubt that it's the movement of the Earth's magnetic pole that's causing all of this climate disruption. Um, so, so that was fairly common, but things really stepped up actually this summer um, and then this fall when there started to be some recognition of my role in reaching out to um, <clears throat> conservative and uh, Christian communities. Um, I do a lot, I spend a lot of my free time speaking at um, Christian colleges, um, church groups, community groups, anybody really who has questions about climate change and invites me to come. Uh, so, so as that started to become more recognized, <clears throat> the, the um, opposition, I think, really started to build. Um, and it certainly has come to a head in the last two months, but um, it's been there all along, and it's something that happens not just to me, but to many, many of my colleagues, and that's the very sad thing about it. So you and your husband are evangelical Christians, which is just another reason why your message is so important <laughs> coming from you, because uh, for so long it's been, you know, almost like, uh, you know, it, it's the tree huggers. It's not the religious Americans. It's not the patriotic Americans who believe in, in climate change. Exactly. And I think that um, my husband would, would agree on this, that I think it's, it's patriotic to try to reduce our dependence on foreign oil and to develop 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> I would think. Um, I, I also think too. You were you were talking earlier about how you know it's it's hard to be green. I think of this not as being green, but just as being human because we all live on this planet. We all depend on our planet for the air we breathe and for the water we drink, and we depend on our planet for every single thing around us, not just our food, but the stuff our furniture is made out of, the stuff our computers are made out of. Everything we have is made out of something from this planet. So from that perspective, it's just part of being human to make sure that what currently sustains us can continue to do so in the future. And yet the practical has become so politicized. And um, one of my visits on the Hannity show, I was talking about how we humans are part of nature. And that radical uh, thought uh, and uh, utterance brought hate mail and I wouldn't call them death threats, but death wishes for me <laughs> from probably the same people who sent them to you. I think that's the same five uh, demons out there. <laughs> It could be, and and isn't that amazing? Because, I mean, to do so is, I think, to deny a central aspect of who we are as humans. I mean, we live on this planet, and it's not that we worship the planet. It's not that we put the planet above people, but it's just practical consideration of the fact that we depend on it for our physical well-being. Well, and isn't that just a sign of how twisted things have become, that you are just speaking the truth as a scientist, and these invectives you get are, you know, clearly clearly intended to intimidate. Uh, I, I've heard you say that you think most of them are coming from males, and as a, as a female, that can be intimidating. And they're, they're just so hateful, just dripping with, you know, just venom. <laughs> Well, I, I think that, that that really highlights the fact that this issue has become so emotional to us. Um, it's, it's not anymore dealing with facts and data. It's deep-rooted fears are coming to the surface and latching onto this issue. We are deathly afraid of things that, that challenge the status quo, of anything that would suggest, um, uh, for example, government interference with our personal lives or anything that would suggest maybe future economic hardships. And so this has become so emotionalized that the opportunity for rational debate has really fallen by the way. And I, I think that we have to acknowledge these emotions because this is what motivates all of us. Um, but at the same time, our emotions need to be placed in the context of the facts because only through looking at the facts of the matter can we really make responsible decisions. D.R. Tucker is our resident Republican climate activist. Uh, D.R., uh, what questions are you itching to ask Catherine before I go ahead with mine? Well, well Catherine, Catherine, first of all, it is absolutely an, an, an honor to speak to you, and, and, I, and I consider you, uh, along with Betsy, one of my heroes, uh, to, to use one of Betsy's uh, terms. Uh, when, when you speak to, to Christian groups, uh, how, how, how intense is, is the level of denial? I know, I know in my own experiences I've run into what I call day-star denialism, where people are of the belief that either God would never allow humans to damage the planet or it's impossible for mankind to to have that mu to do that much environmental damage and as a friend of mine uh, another climate convert Michael Stafford has written in his book an upward calling uh, he likes to remind these people that I that they've presumably never heard of nuclear weapons <laughs> so I just wonder how much of this sort of uh, uh, short-sighted thinking do you do you encounter from people of faith well, um, both of those arguments that you bring up are ones that I've heard many times myself, and, and I know my husband has as well. But I think that we um, there's a common tendency to tar kind of all Christians and all evangelicals with the same brush. And I think that we have to realize that the polls show that a good solid third of people who self-identify as, uh, as evangelical Christians are on board with um, the scientific data and facts about climate change. So, so when you speak to people, there's a really a broad spectrum of 
opinions and perspectives on climate change within the Christian community. But I think there isn't so, so much of a broad spectrum on what our values are, what our core beliefs are. And so with, with, um, the, in the Christian faith, it's important to bring this back to what is the essence of our faith. And the essence of our faith is that we are told to love God and love our neighbors. So we're repeatedly told to care for the poor and care for the needy and to love and care for those around us. And then also part of our core beliefs is the fact that God was involved in creating this planet and that people were given the care over this planet uh, on behalf of God. So, so I think that it's really important to start with what we have in common and work from there. And there's a lot of kind of side issues like the ones you brought up with that are very easy to deal with. I mean, if you think that, that humans aren't big enough to affect the planet, all you have to do is look at the pollution in the air. You can see it with your own eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think that carbon dioxide isn't, doesn't make up enough of the atmosphere to have an impact, well, what would happen if you took a tiny grain of the most deadly poison in the world? It might be so small you couldn't see it, but it would be enough to kill your entire body, which is much bigger. So the whole issue of size, I think, is really easy to deal with. What's not so easy to deal with is the fact that we are called to love. And then we need to take a hard look at what we are doing uh, individually as well as as a community and say, are we really loving people the way we're asked to do? You ask, what would Jesus do about climate change? (laughs) And your answer? I, I actually don't ask myself that because, uh, you know, there wasn't any human-induced climate change when Jesus was around. Um, but I think that he, he gave us um, the guidelines, um, and he's also told us what, what um, we call the fruit of the Spirit, what, what evidence of his work in our lives we can expect. And the evidence is love and joy and peace and kindness and patience. These are the evidences that we know we're on the right track. Now, uh, let's just go back uh, for a few minutes to, um, you know, the encounter with, I think it was a voter in Iowa asking Newt Gingrich, um, certainly you're not going to have that chapter in that book about climate change, are you? And it's just, it makes me just sick every time I see him, you know, turn to an aide and say, yeah, no, we're going to get rid of that. No, we're, we're not. We wouldn't do that. It's a YouTube world. You can't get away with saying things without it getting out there, which is a good thing. And, you know, just the fact that, you know, you didn't know about it first, and, and the fact that he is doing a flip-flop on climate change, which is not the kind of issue you can kind of know and then unknow, you know, it just really says a lot about how, how low they will stoop to to pander to the, um, the the Republican, you know, voters. And it's too bad that they're being grouped that way as tending to not believe in climate change, but as if that is, you know, just anathema. <laughs> Well, I, I think, to be fair, it also says a lot about how, how virulent the attacks are on anyone in any sphere who is willing to stand up and say that, that, that you know, our Earth's temperature is warming and that, you know, not all, but the majority of that warming is due to human causes. Um, anybody who stands up and says that now is open to attack no matter what sphere of life they come from. And that, I think, really reflects on a much bigger issue is that we've come to a sad place where speaking the truth about what God's planet is telling us is literally viewed as the most heinous possible sin. Couldn't agree more. And um, I interviewed Reverend Sally Bingham with uh, 
Interface Power and Light uh, group for, you know, years, over the years, and she's been doing the same work, of course, in the Episcopalian community and beyond, uh, educating, um, you know, religious members of the community about their need to take care of creation. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty it's pretty fundamental, as I say, and yet, um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm glad, and I have been reporting over the years about evangelicals who are getting on board, you know, believing in climate change and believing that there's a role for us to do something about it. Uh, what percent would you say, just roughly, you know, gut feeling uh, of uh, religious Americans, you know, believe that climate change is, is truly a challenge? Any sense of it? Good question. Um, <clears throat> the polls I've seen kind of break things down by different denominations. And so, like I said, for evangelicals, it's about a third. Um, and for other denominations, it's higher than that. So, so it's not a blanket kind of everybody who thinks this says no and everybody who thinks this says yes. Not at all. There's many people out there who realize the nuances and the complexity of this issue and the fact that it really does relate to our core faith, that it's not about about loving trees more than we love people. It's about loving people and caring for the planet because it just makes sense to do so. It's a sensible, wise thing to do. I would say it's the most sensible, wise thing to do because without that, you know, what, what else is going to, you know, be good? And that's what, when everyone says, you know, Betsy, sorry, your green issue is just going on the back burner. You know, everybody's concerned about the economy and jobs. We just don't have the luxury to be concerned about climate change. And it's like, but there's no jobs on a planet without sufficient, you know, food and water and stable climate for us to thrive. And this is just not something we can continue to keep ignoring, uh, especially if we get someone in the White House who doesn't believe we even have a problem, let alone Coming up, you know, Obama does understand it and, of course, could be stronger and we're hoping in a second term will be on, you know, making a real commitment to renewable energy. But we we can so ill afford to have a leader who doesn't get the threat. Well, I think that we, we make a lot of assumptions regarding climate that we often don't realize consciously. Uh, we, you know, most of us have only lived, you know, a matter of decades on this planet, and things have been relatively stable and relatively consistent, even though now we are seeing we are seeing noticeable changes if you're more than 30 years old or so. But, but we, we, we kind of take for granted all of this underlying stuff. We take for granted when the rains come. We take for granted we can get food in the supermarket. We take for granted that there's clean air to breathe. We take all these things for granted, and it's really hard for us to imagine a world where these type of resources might be seriously threatened. And so I think part of it is it's almost inconceivable the effects that climate change could have on our world. And that's why we have such difficulty conceptualizing them and putting them kind of on our priority list because we can't even even think of them in the same way as we think of our normal issues. And yet when it doesn't rain for a long time, like in Texas, and there's, you know, continued drought and fires burning half the state at one time over the uh, summer and fall, uh, I call it the ultimate paradox. Rick Perry, you know, doesn't believe in climate change, proudly uh, standing there, you know, as the cattle die, die in their path, you know, uh, as um, the fires sweep his state. And he's asking, uh, he actually asked President Obama for emergency help um, back in, I think it was Earth Day, so that tells you how long, that was for the droughts that were, you know, uh, eventually became worse and, and turned into fires. So so it's a real big disconnect when someone like that is not putting the dots together on the fact that the weather is changing and that the usual patterns are, are shifting. Mm-hmm. Well, it's true, but it's also really hard because 
we run into this issue where every specific event that occurs always has a natural component and a human component. And so, you know, we had a very strong La Nina this year, which always leads to drought in Texas. Not like we saw this year. This year was certainly very exceptional. But there was a strong natural contribution to it, too. And so it's very difficult for us to parse these things out in our minds because we like things to be black and white. We want an event that we can point to and we can say that was 100% human-induced, nothing natural. And then we want to put everything else in the that's all natural, we can't do anything about a category. So I think a lot of it is kind of our psychology in that we like to be black and white, and climate and its impacts are not always black and white. True, but you talk about the distinction between climate variability versus overall trends, and also that climate change is the ultimate exacerbator, making uh, you know things worse. Absolutely. It's kind of like as if you had two dice, and you always have a chance of rolling a double six naturally, like say where a double six would be like this summer that we just had in Texas. So what climate change is doing is slowly over time for many different types of extremes, but not all of them, but for many like extreme heat and extreme rainfall events, it's taking some of those other numbers and replacing them with sixes so that over time your chance of rolling a double six goes up. But there's no difference between those double sixes that got stuck on later and the ones that, <laughs> that were already there. And so we, that's why it's so important to study climate, which is defined as the average weather over at least 30 years, because we have to look at these long-term trends to really be able to put our finger on the human component of what's happening to us. Tell us about your book, A Climate for Change, which you wrote, I believe, with your husband. Yes. Uh, my husband is a pastor of a church called Ecclesia. Um, and he is also a Christian author. He writes books like uh, The Naked Gospel and God Without Religion and other provocative titles like that. Um, but as a pastor, he has had many, many people coming to him and asking him questions about climate change. Uh, maybe they're, you know, kind of nervous of talking to a scientist and they feel more comfortable with the pastor. So he's gotten all kinds of questions like, um, it's freezing outside. Where is global warming now? Or um, how would we know that God would allow something like this to happen? Doesn't this challenge the idea of God's sovereignty? Or, um, you know, as Christians, shouldn't we just hasten the end times? You know, do, do we really care if the planet's going to be destroyed? That's so the he, one that really scares me. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, so he, over the years, he got a lot of questions like this. And um, I was also getting questions from all the different community groups I was meeting with. Um, really good questions, again, like how do we know that our Earth's temperature really is going up? What evidence do we have and how reliable is that? And why do we think it's people and not a natural cycle or the sun or volcanoes? So we started to look around for resources thinking, well, there's got to be something out there that we can give people. And there are lots of really good books on climate change and good videos and everything. But everything that we found started with the premise that it was happening and it was real and it was people and we should care about it. We couldn't find any resource that started from the premise of why should you care? Why do we even think it's real? And why do we think it has anything to do with people? So we didn't really set out to write a book, but after a couple of years, we thought, well, we need a book that we can be able to hand people <laughs> because we know what questions people are asking, and they're really good questions, and they deserve good answers. So that is where our book came from. Um, my husband was tasked with collecting all of the questions, and I was tasked with not just answering them, but providing an answer that would satisfy him. Because he actually started out when we were married as a, a climate change skeptic himself. Um, he didn't think that the world was warming or that humans had anything to do with it. So we had spent many um, 
past many late nights, <laughs> often, um, going over the data and the answers ourselves. And so I think the strength of our book is that nothing went in that book that he had not agreed made perfect sense and really did answer the questions that everybody has. Catherine, I have to interrupt here or, or interject that uh, you're, you're talking to a former climate change skeptic, uh, D.R. Tucker, uh, didn't believe, and he read the IPCC report, perhaps the one that you contributed to, and became a believer quickly and in a big way. Right, D.R.? Exactly. And, and, and Catherine, uh, you know, with regard to the person who uh, questioned Newt Gingrich and, and caused Newt Gingrich to have his uh, flip-flop, and with regard to, uh, you know, some of, some of the rhetoric from Rick Perry, uh, do, do, you, do you see any sort of political reversal on the horizon, specifically with, with regard to the, to the Republican Party that uh, Gingrich and, and Perry are, are members of? I, I've, I've come to the unfortunate conclusion that that party specifically is devoted to denial and invested in ignorance, and I just don't see any way that they can walk back, you know, 25 years of, of putting forward the idea that this is all some sort of gigantic hoax cooked up by Al Gore. Is there any hope for a sort of bipartisan, a bipartisan solution, or is, will it just be a partisan solution in terms of the legislation needed to finally reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Um, that is a good question, and I wish I knew the answer to it. So when you find out, <laughs> let me know. We'll see. Um, the, the, the one thing I do know, though, is that um, I've been following this Gallup poll that's been asking people for, I think, 12 years now, um, or 13 years now, if they think that global warming is generally exaggerated. And what they found is they've been asking people this question and then asking them if they're Democrat or Republican. When they first started asking this question back in the late 1990s, there was very little significant difference between the answers of Democrats and Republicans. Since then, Democrats' response has remained about the same. Their, their percentage hasn't changed very much over time. Republicans' answer to that question has changed dramatically over time. So at least according to that Gallup poll, there has been a politicization of this issue that did not exist 15 years ago. And that is what's so sad because, as I said before, thermometers are not Democrat or Republican. Satellites are not red or blue or green. And I don't think we have any extra planets in the wings. So don't they have kids and grandkids? That's the one that really gets me. Is it all just about taking money from the fossil fuel industry? Or, or actually, DR has a pretty good theory about libertarians and why they're so afraid of you know, acknowledging climate change is real because it might uh, actually say there's a, there's a real need for government intervention and leadership. Well, I think that that relates to our, our, our fear issue again. It's not about data. It's about deep-seated fears that we have that are being triggered by the issue of climate change but do not originate from it. it it's, it's a very interesting point, and you note that the shift over the past 15 years, I, I'm sure it's not a coincidence that that shift of Republican opinion over the past 15 years coincides with the, with the rise of a certain uh, news channel <laughs> that peddles this sort of a denialist uh, garbage. And, and that's no small thing. You mentioned, of course, uh, it's not it's not just Fox News. It's Radio 2. Ninety-five percent of talk radio, folks, is conservative um, in nature. I've heard it from actual syndicators, so it's true, radio syndicators. And speaking of that, it was uh, Rush Limbaugh, Bimbo as I call him, um, speaking uh, about his outrage at Newt for having you in his book. Uh, and I think he referred to you as a climate babe. I guess that's that's nice for him. But uh, I think he was on with uh, Mike Morano, who I call Mark, Mark Moronic. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I've gotten to, uh, after covering this 15 years, it's the only way I can handle this kind of uh, 
short-sightedness and hate is vitriol is to um, somehow diminish them because they, I think, deserve it, those who are stubbornly putting their heads in the sand. Or as I call them, the people who have no idea who Russell Kirk is. Yeah, exactly. So what, I, I, I understand that frustration. But, um, yes, yeah, speaking personally, though, I feel like um, – I think part of what is separating us is our rhetoric, unfortunately, and I, I understand the reason for the rhetoric on both sides. It's because of, of our emotional response to what's going on. It's so difficult. With, with Rush Limbaugh, I understand that, too. My, I, I'm the first to admit that I have a very bad last name. It is really easy <laughs> to make fun of my last name. Now, that is a bit of grade school humor, I have to say, but, you know, it was kind of him as he won a platter there, and he took advantage. <laughs> I, yeah, I, got, I didn't even make that connection, <laughs> and I'm usually aware so, oh my, you know, but just the um, the, the the hatred and the, the poisoning of the airwaves, you know, that's what drives me crazy when, you know, it might be funny, it might be entertaining, with, which I guess a lot of folks think it is, if it was something that wasn't so important that will impact the entire planet and, you know, generations to come. And it's just gone on too long. You know, I think it has been building for the last 15 years. It's 2012. We just had a year or two of extreme weather around the country, around the planet, uh, costing lives, costing jobs, you know, leveling cities. You know, what is it going to take to just say, grow up, people? You know, I think we should just send them to their room and take them, you know, they, they, need, they need a quiet hour. Get them off the air. I'm trying to get Sean Hannity off upset because, you know, he actively, I mean, they just spew garbage, let's face it, and they're just bullies, and it's not funny. And they're, and they're making millions and millions of dollars, by the way, uh, by continuing to confuse Americans about this issue. Well, I, th I think it's, it's um, a broader issue than just climate change. I think it's a, a basic disrespect of each other as human beings um, that's going on. And, it, and then we see it exemplified in the dialogue on climate, but we also see it in many other areas as too. too. So, Again, it's a really important issue for civil society to be able to respect each other, even if we differ. And I think that that is singularly lacking in this area. We are. Yes, we uh, just have a few minutes left. It's it's it, it is it is a, a, a very much a demonstration of the sort of decline in in civility. Uh, and and if and if you think about it, you know, because you know when I did my piece saying that uh, for, from form saying that I no was no longer a climate skeptic, uh, uh, Murano went after me. He's gone after you. He's gone after Terry uh, Emanuel of MIT. And to me, it, my reaction is that whatever he is for politically, I am against because any movement or any ideology that you know tolerates that sort of behavior is a movement or an ideology that is intellectually dead as opposed to science which is intellectually alive so that's sort of my take on things i don't know how 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 you respond to it but that's sort of the way i see it mm -hmm. and uh there's just this um you know i think you call it uh, politics is informing science instead of what should be the reverse of that science should be informing politics exactly uh, and you have a great YouTube. Uh, I, I put it up on uh, my Facebook page. Um, I, I love Catherine. That that you know, just two or three minutes of just very, you know, sort of warm, natural conversation about you know conservation and 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 the, the role of religion in this and how we need to love our neighbors, both those we can see and global neighbors. And you end with a picture of um, some drought-stricken people, probably you know in Africa somewhere and. They are feeling the impacts of our SUVs and our uh, lack of dealing with it, and uh, we mm -hmm. do have an inordinate impact. We hear in the states because of our, you know, 
population and consumption growth. There, there's a reason why World Vision International, which is one of the biggest relief organizations in the world and is also a Christian organization, there's a reason why they have a director of climate change because they are already experiencing the impacts on the poor and the needy. And they understand that if we do not address this issue, it's like pouring our money into a bucket with a hole in the bottom, and that hole is climate change. Catherine Hayhoe, I am so glad that you're out there doing what you're doing, and just keep it up. Don't let the bullies get to you, and uh, just keep your calm demeanor and continue to speak the truth. Uh, so important to keep it out there and to keep the, the baggage, you know, separate. You know, climate change has all this political baggage and all this, you know, money, ba- money bags, I guess, too. And we just need to detach that as soon as possible. I'm sure you agree, DR. Yes, absolutely. Thank and you. It was a pleasure speaking with both of you guys. Thanks, Wonderful. We'll, maybe we'll check back with you in a few months, and um, hopefully we'll have some new positive developments. We've been speaking with Catherine Hayhoe, a climate scientist at Texas Tech, also uh, author of a book called A Climate for Change, Global Warming Facts for Faith-Based Decisions. Highly recommend that. And, of course, she uh, became unknown in the last few weeks because uh, of the chapter that she had contributed to New contributed to Newt Gingrich's book, which has been in the works for years, by the way, but has uh, not yet come out, and now he conveniently is going to hold it until after the election, because it's about the environment. I think it's called Environmental Entrepreneurs, uh, but he's now dumped the chapter on climate change, uh, called the spot he did with um, Nancy Pelosi for Al Gore back in 2000, one of the biggest mistakes he's made, and somehow has uh, become a disbeliever, which is not even possible. There's just no way you can understand the threat of climate change and then uh, pretend you don't know it. So it's it's political garbage, and uh, we have to uh, keep people like Catherine Hayhoe out there in the forefront who uh, letting people know that I'm not going to be, you're not going to bend, not going to be bowed by this um, ridiculous political circus that we're in. Thanks, VR, for joining me for that interview. Thank when we you come so back, much. we're going to be talking about something that contributes to global warming, and that is um, energy uh, use in our homes and buildings, and we're going to talk about how you can be more energy efficient with someone who's been working on that for decades now, uh, Dennis Crook, right after these messages. You're listening to The Green Front. I'm Betsy Rosenberg. If you joined us in progress, you can catch the entire show at theprogressiveradionetwork.com or on my site, which is thegreenfront.com. 